Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. I'm joined today by Dr. Amanda Vincent, who is a co-founder and director of Project Seahorse and is the first marine conservationist to win Indianapolis Prize for Animal Conservation in 2020 and was recently elected as a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. How cool is that? Amanda, it is awesome to virtually meet you and to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I'm so glad to chat with you. This is great. So you've done some absolutely amazing things, which we'll dive into in a second, but let's talk about where this all started for you. Where did this passion for marine conservation you have come from? Oh, I think it starts with a passion for the ocean. And I can't really explain that. Just something about the ocean touches me and I just wanted to have lots to do with it. Um, And so that, I actually ended up... um, throughout my high school years doing mostly history, geography, economics, that sort of thing. And then in the very last year of high school, I took a biology course and I discovered I love it. So I pivoted and now um, I've come full circle and do biology in a context of history and politics and economics and geography. So I managed to combine everything. Wow, that is awesome. Did you grow up near the water or anything like that? Was it was it kind of like a background thing for you? And then as you got, as you took that class, you were like, oh, wait, this is actually cool. Or I grew up in a family of vagabonds, I think is the way to explain it. Uh, <laughs> when my father, who's quite a lot older than my mother, um, got fed up with the corporate life, he chucked it all over when I was two years old. And my family cashed in every possession they had, took their meager amount of money and headed off to South America for several years, just gallivanting around the continent gradually developing a business of lecturing and consulting on South America. So I really grew up just about everywhere. Um, And I think that helped to give me a heck of a worldview. It wasn't a financially rich childhood, but it was certainly rich in every other respect. I love that. That gives you a great opportunity to learn and grow and get involved in all sorts of different things. So you kind of took that and ran, huh? Yeah. And I I have two kids myself and I'm a single parent and the two kids and I um, in, what is it? um, Three years ago, threw over absolutely everything 2017 and just headed off around the world. Um, I was very fortunate and I had a job where I could take a sabbatical year and continue to draw a salary (laughs) from my parents, but we contributed to conservation projects and developed conservation um, coordination initiatives and so on in quite a lot of countries around the world. So my kids were exposed to that freedom to wander, I suppose, as well. I love that. So what do you do now? And how did you pursue that? How did you get to where you are now? Because you're doing a couple different things. You juggle juggle a couple different titles. Yeah, I'm a, my day job, the paid job, is a professor at the University of British Columbia, where I'm in the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries. But um, that could be a a rather sedate academic job. And instead, I decided that I wanted to live my passion. And so I'm very involved in the practical applications of conservation knowledge and work very closely with people all over the world to try to really affect change on the ground. And um, the metrics used for university academics are largely the production of intellectual knowledge. But for me, it's the application that lights my fire. So I'm always taking knowledge and actually trying to 
um, figure out what we do with it and then how I can learn more. It's a bit of a ratchet. You know, you apply the knowledge you have and you learn more and you try to improve it and you get better. So the, you know, my reason for getting out of bed in the morning is the change we can make actually, well, I was going to say on the ground, but I guess in the ocean um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the production of academic papers and tracts and treatises is necessary, but certainly not what drives me to, to push forward. So what are you looking at? What are you studying while working at UBC? Well, it turns out that I have a thing for seahorses. So uh, I started working on seahorses uh, 30 odd years ago. That's rather astonishing to say that actually, um, 30 odd years ago. And I had no idea when I started that I'd be the first biologist to work on seahorses underwater. That was a bit of a stunner when it gradually became wow. obvious, wallowing in the unknown. Um, and so at that point, I was interested in the evolution of sex, sex differences. That is, you know, why in seahorses do the males get pregnant? Yep, the males get pregnant. And what did that mean for other relationships between the sexes? And so that's where the work all started. And we can explore that if you want to. And then over time, I realized that um, that these animals were under huge pressure and they were threatened. Their populations were threatened and did a lot of the initial work on that which um, led to me wanting to make a difference and protect them. But then you soon realize you can't protect just the seahorses. You've got to take on the whole ocean to get things sorted out. So that's where we are right now. Wow. That's almost unbelievable that it was the first work on seahorses underwater because that's just so crazy. Like they've been around. We've known about seahorses for so long. But the first work on them underwater, that's unreal. It was a bit astonishing to me too. And a bit <laughs> daunting, to be honest. You you sort of start ferreting in the literature and go, oopsie. Oh, wait. <laughs> exactly. In seahorses, only the male gets pregnant. And I was fascinated by this evolution of sex difference. You know, what does it mean when you have male pregnancy? And I use the word very carefully, male pregnancy, because um, the female transfers eggs to the male's brood pouch on his abdomen. And then he provides oxygen and nutrition and controls the pouch environment and goes into labor and releases the young. And wow, if that's happening, what does that mean for other sex differences? So that's what started me off. And then um, in the course of all that work, um, I realized that actually uh, the seahorse is very threatened. So I still do some of that evolution of sex differences work, but mostly I pivoted to try to secure seahorse populations and then that, if you're trying to support the future for seahorses, you pretty soon realize that you're going to have to pay attention to their habitats and their ecosystems and the other associated species and the fishing pressure and the dredging pressure and the dumping pressure. And then you realize, oh my goodness, the people who make these decisions actually are trying to support families and communities. So you have to worry about that. And then you realize, wow, this is all in a governance framework. So you have to start paying attention to social constructs and economics and opportunity within communities and countries. And then after a while you think, well, wow, wait, you know, the countries don't have total independence. And so you start to work on a global scale and eventually get out to the idea that everybody plays a role in this. And it's a bit mind blowing when you actually spiel it out like that, but we've been able to work on all those levels to try to affect a difference. So it's been very invigorating actually. That is super cool. So you started out looking at their pregnancies and stuff, which it always almost blows my mind. Like it's so strange to think about that the males are, well, like you said, the females have the eggs and insert them into the male's pouch, which is just such a weird, cool thing. Like it just 
so cool that they can do that. It sounds weird and it sounds cool. But in fact, in marine fishes, if you get parental care at all, it's more commonly the male that cares. So that's the first thing to know. The males tend to care more than the females, or sometimes they care together. But um, one of the reasons for that is that um, males can care for the, the clutches of quite a few females at once. So it doesn't actually compromise their reproductive um, capacity the way that it would, for example, in many other species. Fair. I used to work at an aquarium. We had seahorses there. And someone told me one day when we were feeding them to go watch the video of a male seahorse giving birth. And that is one of the coolest videos I have ever seen. It's so funny. It's just like a t-shirt cannon almost. Like they just continuously are shooting out these babies, these tiny little babies. And the fact that those babies can start out so tiny and grow to still tiny, but relatively large animals. Well, that's so cool. That's kind of the story with fishes. You know, most fish produce really little things that grow up to be often quite big things. So they tend to invest in, in lots of not so big young rather than few large young like mammals do, right? So it's just yeah. a very different reproductive strategy for sure. Um, so then you, after you looked at that for a little bit, you migrated on or moved on to looking at how to protect them and why do they need protecting? So what is the thing that's threatening these seahorses the most? Is there something like I that's going to open up almost a can of worms because it's kind of like, well, everything. But what are some of the main things that are impacting them or affecting them? Uh, well, the biggest single issue for our oceans, the biggest single pressure is the same as the biggest single pressure on seahorses, which is fishing. So you'll hear a lot about plastics and climate change and so on, all of those matter. But by far and away, the dominant pressure in the oceans is fishing. And seahorses are caught by targeted fishers. Um, but they're also caught in indiscriminate gear, bottom trawls and other forms of, of sort of grabbing nets that take everything there is. So that's the, the single biggest pressure on seahorses by far. Um, they're targeted individually by small scale fishers, but mostly they're caught accidentally in indiscriminate fishing gear. And then, of course, their habitats are being threatened as well. Their seagrass, mangrove, coral reefs, estuary habitats, those are all being threatened. And then you've got, uh, and those are threatened by mechanical damage and um, invasive species and habitat, uh, climate change and all the rest of it. Okay, so how can we, what, what's a manageable way to help this? Because obviously the best would be to just be like, no more fishing, that just saves all the oceans. But that's not right now an attainable, sustainable thing. So how could we go about helping these guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that you can't say no more fishing, and we have certainly shied away from that because fishing is a critical contributor to human well-being as well. as You know, it can be managed sustainably, but I think we are reaching a pitch where we're going to say no more bottom trawling. So mm. bottom trawling is the single most aggressive gear for seahorses. That's when you drop, <clears throat> excuse me, a massively weighted net on the bottom of the ocean and you drag it through the ocean, picking up everything in the path. Um, indiscriminately. It's a completely crazy catch. And that puts enormous pressure on seahorse populations, but also on thousands of other species that we don't even name. And I think we are reaching a pitch where we've got to rein in and eventually, in the short term, please, stop bottom trawling. So that now I'm becoming more and more confident is just not acceptable given the damage it actually does to ocean habitats and to ocean species. Um, so that, that's one thing. And then of course we need to take a lot of other measures 
um, commensurate with that, we need to set in place protected areas and um, we need to have a whole bunch of policy initiatives that will actually release pressure on these, these wild populations. Absolutely. So you also have uh, your other project, which is Project Seahorse. So would you like to tell us a little bit about Project Seahorse? Well, Project Seahorse really is all tangled up with my academic work as well. <laughs> um, so Project Seahorse is an alliance of um, my students and staff and so on with um, a lot of people based at the Zoological Society of London in the UK. So it's, it's our two sets of people. Um, really working to ensure that we have a future in which seahorses are are thriving. And then to do that, we obviously have to work on many different layers. So Project Seahorse is very active in looking at the seahorses themselves, assessing their conservation status and working out um, how they thrive or struggle. But that then leads us to care very much about, as I say, the, the layers of pressure that are bearing down on the seahorses. So it's, um, we're a small band of people. We punch way above our weight um, just by being very strategic in how we apply our energies. And we've managed to effect a lot of changes around the world um, by sheer bloody mindedness sometimes, just a determination to, to effect change and finding sensitive leverage points to actually make a difference. Wow. So you're the co-founder of that. What gave you the idea for this? Where did, where did it come from? Well, I, as I said, I was the first biologist, weirdly, to work on seahorses underwater. And then I had great um, colleagues at the Zoological Society of London who were doing wonderful marine conservation work. And we got chatting and decided to put a real push on seeing what could be done for the seahorses. Uh, and so we, we plunged into to Project Seahorse, which is very multifaceted and really just trying to make a difference in the ocean. Um, we measure our success by what we achieve, not what we publish. And in an academic environment, that's not as common. So that's been really quite um, challenging at times, but also deeply rewarding because we've managed to make real change around the world. That's awesome. What have been some of the projects or work that you guys have done? Yeah, well, if you go back to sort of this layers of, of work, I mean, we, we've done all the, if we take the seahorse layer, first of all, then we've done all the assessments of their conservation status and we've done a ton of biological research on them and um, really developed a lot of protective measures for them. Um, but to do that, we've had to really pay attention to their habitats and ecosystems. So we've been able to put in place um, 35 marine protected areas, um, small scale, but pretty effective, primarily in the Philippines and now working in other countries. Um, and then we've been able to put in place community-based management because people make decisions based on their needs. So we've done a lot with communities to help them to alleviate pressure on these animals. Um, we've been able to put in place a lot of national legislation that acts to protect seahorses, their communities, their habitats. It's not, we don't just focus on the species itself, but everything that's associated with it. And then we got the first ever global export regulations for any marine fishes. Um, and that was with the seahorses uh, way back in 2002 and implemented in 2004. So now if any country wants to export seahorses, it has to prove that those exports are sustainable and will not damage wild populations. And then we also work with citizen science initiatives. We have something called iSeahorse where people can report their seahorses and help to, to generate the right degree of management and protection. And, and so it goes. So we're active on all sorts of layers, obviously in collaboration with loads of people. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, it's it's good. It's rewarding. I mean, 
when you speak about seahorses, people will stop and listen. So you're able to use that charm of the seahorses to try to effect change, obviously for seahorse populations, but also for their broader communities and ecosystems. They are a very interesting animal. Uh, it's really interesting because I always kind of see them as like, um, they have the same charisma as these large megafaunas, but they're so small, but they all, they're so interesting to watch and to see them just swimming around and moving. Yeah. I mean, for many people, they sort of bracket them with a unicorn. And I've had lots of people quite surprised that they actually exist. You know, they, they thought it was a heraldic creature. But, you know, they very much exist, at least for the moment. As long as we do our job well, hopefully we'll have them for the long term. There are about, well, 46, 47 species, something like that, of seahorses wow. around the world. And they range in size from your baby fingernail up to sort of your forearm from your elbow to your hand. So you can get oh some pretty goodness. big ones, actually. Yeah, that, that's quite large. Mm -hmm. And they're found from you know, sort of South Korea, um, Eastern Canada, right down to Tasmania or Patagonia. Yeah, that's so cool to me that, so I'm on East Coast Canada right now. And like I said, I worked in this aquarium that had some seahorses there. And I'd often get the question, oh, like, do we have seahorses around here? And your like knee jerk reactions being like, oh no, the water's way too cold. Uh, but I, I got that question. I was like, you know what? Like, I actually, I'm not sure. And I looked into it and it, is so interesting to me that they can live in waters here because they're so they're pretty cold waters so it's well, very interesting that we can get them here yeah i mean they live in they live in cold waters lots of places so they live pretty far north in the north sea and in, in europe they live in japan korea um southwards they live in patagonia which is plenty chilly as well as tasmania and southern australia new zealand has lots so they're they're fairly catholic in their tastes and that they will they'll live in shallow inshore tropical and temperate waters really all over the world. Mm, yeah. It's just, it's so cool to me. I, it's one of those, I think when I think of them, since I don't know as much about them, I think, oh, they're these cute little creatures that are from what I've seen and the ones I've seen are colorful and cool. So they just fit in the tropical uh, habitat for me, but that's so cool that they can live in so many different places. Yeah. The ones in our Northern waters are indeed slightly less colorful, although they have some capacity to change if you put them in a fun background. So, <laughs> so out of the projects that you have done with project seahorse and of course uh, your career, what has been your biggest project? And then what has been your favorite project that you've done? Oh goodness. Um, well, I think the biggest project was getting the first ever global export regulations for any marine fish species. Yeah, so, that's huge. That was a big one. So CITES is um, the United Nations Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species, CITES. And CITES um, has 182 plus the EU, so 183 member nations. Um, and it regulates trade for sustainability, trade of animals and plants. But it had systematically refused to engage with marine fishes, regarding that as the domain of, of the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is you know a consumptive forum, um, and just had refused to engage with that at all. And we managed to change that. So the first ever marine fishes brought under global export regulation were seahorses, agreed in 2002 and implemented in 2004. So that was pretty massive and really opened the door for regarding marine fishes as wildlife. So since then, this global convention, which regulates export trade, is now engaged with, you know, uh, quite a lot of, of sharks and rays and engaged with uh, myriad, you know, European eels and um, different types of angelfish. And it's it's 
engaged in quite a lot of marine species, whereas it hadn't at all when we got involved. And so all 183 jurisdictions, I guess, countries have to ensure that their exports are sustainable. They have to ensure that the exports they are making are not damaging wild populations, which is quite a tricky thing to do, actually. So many of them have got quite conservative and just banned the trade, which wasn't quite our intention, but okay. Um, <laughs> so that that's probably, you know, the, the biggest global impact. And we're still working with that all the time, trying to make certain that it's properly implemented and effective and, and is a trailblazer for lots of other marine species that are coming along behind. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, so that, that's been a huge, but we've got lots of other, you know, um, successes along the way for sure. And um, I, I think the the thing I most enjoy is still getting out and actually being with the animals in the wild, which sadly I don't get to do all that often, but it lights my fire for sure when I've had a day underwater. So that would be one of your favorite projects is anyone that gets you out into the water? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Just, it's very zen-like watching seahorses. They don't do a whole heck of a lot most of the time. They come together in most species remembering there are about 46, 47 species, most species, the male and female come together every morning and do a little dance together. And that's kind of wonderful, but very, very slow measured ballet. Otherwise, you know, they don't do a whole lot. So it's extremely Zen to watch seahorses underwater because their greatest energy goes to just reaching out and sucking in some food. And that makes me really happy working with them. And plus there's always the fun of seeing a male getting pregnant and encumbered by his load of babies. Um, <laughs> which, you know, an awful lot of women will find quite charming. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, anything, anytime I get to be in the water, I'm very, very happy. But obviously the in-water work is super important and anchors a lot of our policy work, but the policy work has, you know, greater traction. So we're always trying to balance between the, the inner layer of this, of the onion world where we're working with the seahorses themselves and the outer layers where we've gone through working with the habitat and the fishers and their communities and legislatures. And we're now dealing on the global policy forum and it's, it's a dance back and forth all the time. Yeah. So the seahorses dance, what is that about? <laughs> it's very charming. So in many, many species, not all of them, but a great many species, the male and the female come together every morning for a little morning dance, as you say, and then they separate for the rest of the day. So when they come together, they change colors, they become brighter or paler, and they hold tails and they pivot around and they shake and shimmy and uh, just interact with each other. Um, and then on the day that the male has given birth, uh, this obviously serves to coordinate them a bit because the female is there with her next load of eggs. So cool. it's, it's extremely beautiful. Is uh, there a specific purpose for it? Or is it just kind of like a, a routine for them? It's maintaining a pair bond. They form these very, very rigid pair bonds where they stick through each, with each other through thick and thin. I mean, we've had a, a male seahorse whose pouch was drilled open by, I guess, probably a mollusk, probably some sort of um, shell. And uh, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't, he couldn't carry babies. He had a big gaping hole in his pouch. But the female still kept coming in every morning and dancing with him and Eventually the pouch healed and there they were. And he was pregnant again before you could say boo. Cute. So, yeah. I know you're not supposed to like anthropomorphize, but they make it hard not to, you know? Oh gosh. I anthropomorphize all the time. <laughs> and, you know, part of the job is trying to keep it separate for the purposes of, um, you know, data analysis or um, policy argumentation. But I don't think there's anybody who seeing a seahorse doesn't feel a little tight at their heartstrings. They're just so improbable. You know, you've heard them likened to chess knights on a on a chessboard, and indeed, it's kind of where they are. I think so. 
<laughs> love it. Now, you said they also spend a lot of their time eating. These guys are, they can be quite small, so they range in size. Does the food stay the same, give or take, throughout the species and the sizes, or would they be eating different things for different sizes? Yeah, I mean, the smallest seahorse species as an adult is about the size of your baby fingernail. It's pretty tiny. Oh, my goodness. And maybe even a bit smaller, actually, uh, depending how long your fingernail is. But the size of the largest species would be, you know, your forearm. So they, they really do, do differ greatly in, in size. So they, they eat always live moving food, but obviously, and they're, they're ambush predators. They just hang about till the food goes past and then they grab it and suck it in. And obviously they choose food that's more or less appropriate for their gape size because they have this long tubular snout. And every now and then one of them will miscalculate horribly and get a, something big stuck in their snout, which is you know, a bit of a tube. And you see them coughing and jerking and choking all over the ocean floor until eventually they release their young. They release the food. I mean, sorry, they release the food from the snout. They get it out of the snout and then they, they go back to their normal feeding. But you can have some pretty catastrophic choking events. <laughs> what a straight. I would never think that a seahorse would choke, but I, it makes sense. It makes full sense. But it's just but they don't something I ever thought. Yeah. They don't have teeth. So they just suck it into their snout. And if you and I, you know, just sucked in everything we could actually fit in our snout we might have a dreadful time when it hit our throat right so yes this is true <laughs> they don't have teeth remember they don't have teeth okay um and they don't have stomachs so whatever they pull in is kind of just wanders through a large tube and so they constantly poop as well as a consequence wait they don't have stomachs what no, the heck that's so cool they just have an intestine that winds around so they just like absorb the nutrients throughout their intestine and then release the so, the waste yep mm-hmm what? Yeah. That is so cool. Oh, there's a million cool things about these weird critters. And that's why they're great spokes species, if you will. They're great flagship ambassadors for the ocean because, you know, everybody stops to hear stories about seahorses and to look at seahorses. So you can really weave in some very big issues when you're, when you're engaging people with seahorses. Yeah, they make a great entry point. Like you have some fun facts about them and then you can also squeeze in like, hey, they're also like, here's why they're in trouble or how they're in trouble. And here's what you can do to help. That's exactly right. And that's what we do rather a lot, engaging people in much broader issues with seahorses as the, as the spooks species. So we're, you know, our, my main concern is the health of the oceans and particularly the inshore oceans. Um, seahorses are my passion. And luckily the two connect really nicely in getting people to, to care. Wow. So if there is something that individuals were looking to do to help seahorses just on their own, is there anything that like a singular person could do to help? Or is it more kind of grand scheme things that need to be done? Yeah, you can help lots. Just don't eat shrimp. Um, <laughs> the, the bottom crawling in the ocean, when you scrape the bottom and gouge the bottom and grab everything in your path, that's just devastating for seahorses and thousands of other species too. And the bottom trawling that catches shrimp is, you know, really, really hard on other species. So a lot of the shrimp catches might be 5% shrimp or 2% shrimp or, you know, a, a very good catch would be 12 to 15% shrimp. And the rest is stuff you didn't mean to get, including seahorses. So the greatest single pressure on seahorses is almost certainly bottom trawling. So stay off food that's bottom trawled and particularly stay off shrimp. Because, you know, shrimp, one way they're obtained for us is through this bottom trawling, but another way is by fish ponds or culture ponds in coastal habitats and establishing those ponds destroys really important coastal habitats for for wild habitats so either way whether they're cultured shrimp or whether they're 
trawled shrimp or wild caught shrimp, you're best to stay off them because they just do no good for our environment at all. Seahorses, you know, a very, very large number of seahorses are obtained in shrimp trawls and other forms of bottom trawling. So there are a lot, one of their biggest, biggest threats is being bycatch, which is a huge thing in the oceans that I feel like gets touched on, but not super well understood or the magnitude of it is kind of like a, oh yeah, there's bycatch in this, but don't worry about it. Kind of just pushed to the side almost. Well, I think that we don't really, we aren't even necessarily where the fishing is the biggest threat by far. People hear mm. quite a lot about climate change and nowadays they hear a lot about plastics and a lot about plastics in the ocean. You know, that's certainly of concern, but it's nothing like the concern that fisheries are. Um, yeah. Poorly managed fisheries are just a, a massive problem for our ocean. Um, and bottom trawling is the most egregious of those. Um, you know, it, when you when you have a bottom trawl, you just drop a heavily weighted net on the bottom of the ocean and you drag it. And everything in the path of that net is caught, which is very problematic. Um, many... <laughs> Many shrimp trawls might get, you know, one, two, five percent target species, and the rest is bycatch, and also brings up a lot of habitat as well. So bottom trawling is is just lethal. It's a terrible way of fishing, and is actually banned from the inshore waters of a great many countries. But um, even though it's very damaging and not very productive, it still seems to hold sway in many waters of the world, and it's it's a difficult one. But we're going to have to get rid of bottom trawling in the long run. Mm. Fisheries are definitely like a a touchy subject because you get like if your ocean conservation is looking at it you're like hey these are bad for the oceans but then you get the people like i know where i'm from small town fishing communities are all around and the second you bring up like hey maybe fishing isn't the best for the ocean it's like you hate everyone that lives here you hate us you're against us this is how we make our living and it's like well no i i just i like the oceans and i want to be able to enjoy the oceans and i want like it's not sustainable to keep fishing at the rate well, that we're fishing. Yeah, but I think we can target it in a little bit of a nuanced way. I mean, I agree with you if we're continuing at this rate, we're doing a lot of damage. But, you know, I think if we focus on bottom trawling, it's a reasonable place to really put a heavy emphasis because bottom trawling, you know, puts enormous pressure on the habitats as well as the populations. And it tends to provide very little employment for fishing communities. Um you know, in a global scale. I mean, it obviously does on certain local communities, but on a global scale, it provides relatively little little employment, and yet it wreaks enormous damage. So I think we are going to have to rein in bottom trawling. Other forms of fishing we can probably bring to sustainable levels, but it's hard to imagine we're going to make sustainable something that gouges the ocean floor and grabs everything in its path. Absolutely. Like, there is fisheries that it's like, this can be sustainable as long as we maintain the populations and whatnot. But with bottom trawling, that's just you. It's like having a garden and somebody just drives over your garden and picks up things on their way. Like they're getting a little bit, but they're really just destroying the garden for the next little while. The analogy as well, if you want to go to a wild habitat is imagine, imagine two helicopters, you know, picture your favorite hillside and imagine two helicopters dropping, uh, you know, weighted, very heavy, um, wire um, that slices off everything at ground level and plows up the, the habitat as it's doing it. I mean, we'd be appalled if we saw a forest on a hillside disappearing under two, uh, under a net suspended from two helicopters, but that's, and worse if it plowed up the actual habitat, but that's, that's what's happening in the ocean. So I think people are tolerating it just because they have been exposed to the full horror of bottom trawling when it's untrammeled and unmanaged or, or when it's, 
you know, just going out willy nilly to catch absolutely everything, which is now becoming the case. It's also one of those out of sight, out of mind things. Like if you're not on the coast and even then, if you're not seeing these bottom trawls and you don't understand what they do, it's pretty easy to push out of your mind unless you're making the conscious effort to look into it and learn more about it. Yeah. And you don't see, um, you know, you don't really see bottom trawls at work. If you try to get video footage of what's going on in a bottom trawl, there's very few actual bits of footage of that. Um, it's, it's a tremendously damaging form of fishing and it violates the rights of all sorts of small scale inshore fishers, but we, we don't really have a good sense of it. And very few people understand the sheer annihilation that it creates. Mm -hmm. So I know there's never really a typical day in your life, but if you had to describe kind of what a typical day in your life at work looks like, what would it be? Whether that be your most exciting day or your least exciting day, what does it kind of look like to you? Uh, well, you know, a lot of my time nowadays is spent at a desk and that's not, you know, my natural habitat, shall we say, where I want to be is out, um, you know, snorkeling, diving on boats actually near the animals. But much of my time now is spent on policy and management. So a typical day would be far too desk oriented, but a favorite day would be, you know, getting up early and getting in the water with the animals and just watching them for ages. So that's, that's really where my passion lies. I love that. And if you had any advice for any younger women who wanted to follow kind of in your footsteps and do what you do and uh, work with policy or specifically work with seahorses, what would be your advice to them? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think um, to take a multifaceted approach, you know, it isn't scientists who are going to solve this problem of ocean management. It's going to take all sorts of disciplines and all sorts of types of people, all sorts of communities. So the broader your understanding of the pressures on the ocean and the broader your, the bigger your toolkit, in addressing them, then the more difference you're likely to make. And I think where we've been successful is by engaging um, collaborators and stakeholders and participants to actually help to effect change. Um, I'd also say, you know, seize your courage in both hands and get going because especially, you know, people trained in academia, people with degrees tend to think that you need complete knowledge before you make a policy change or management recommendation. And that just isn't the case. We have to keep going with the best knowledge we have. And we have to just plunge in and be explicit about what we know and don't know, but then apply it and see what difference it makes and track it and adjust it if need be in a what we call adaptive management, where you're constantly responding to what you've learned and what opportunities are available to us. I love that. It's a really good outlook. And you have to accept that you won't get it right all the time. But you yes. know, um, it always amused me. Um, a couple decades ago, um, I was, uh, I found out that in Britain at that point, the economists who were predicting the major trends and national trends did significantly worse than random in their predictions, meaning you would have done better to ignore everything they said and did the opposite. Um, <laughs> and I always find that quite startling, but it should encourage us to engage and stick our necks out. And I think our job is to be utterly honest about where we leave the world of certainty and go in the world of of best guesses and speculation, but it's really necessary that we do that and not wait for complete certainty because our oceans are in trouble. Our ocean wildlife is in trouble and we have to be prepared to take a risk and be explicit about our, our gambles and guesswork, but stick our necks out and actually try to affect change. Well, it's uh, I've seen a couple of these things on like Twitter and Facebook and whatnot that it's like, 
if we wait for certainty, if we wait to see if what we're doing is really going to kill us, then we'll be dead. And it's like worst case scenario, if everything isn't exactly what we think it's going to be, or if we're doing the wrong things, the worst case scenario, we end up with a cleaner, healthier planet. And then we can go from there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's got to be a constant loop of adaptive management. We do the best we can do, and then we track and see how well that worked. And if it didn't, well, we nudge it and we do it again. But we can't wait for certainty before we plunge forward trying to make change. We just have to be honest about monitoring and adjusting as we discover more. Yes, I love that. Now, you just won the uh, prize for animal conservation. What was that like? How would you uh, feel about that? Was that exciting? Yeah, um, it was extraordinary. Indianapolis Prize is kind of the best, biggest prize you can win in the world of animal conservation. And I've been thrilled to have other very important awards. And this one was, you know, extremely wonderful. Um, it was the first time a marine person had won it, really. Um, so that was a bit startling. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I think marine people don't win as often is it's awfully hard to get a handle on what's actually happening in the ocean but we were able to demonstrate the, the various, the many different routes that we'd taken to actually try to effect change. So it's tremendously exciting um, and gives a bit of a platform to try to convince people to make better decisions about protecting our oceans. So yeah, Indianapolis Prize is a, is a huge joy. Well, that is so exciting. Congratulations on that. That's huge. And also very impressive that it's the first Marine conservation one to win a little worrisome but very impressive still yeah i think it is um you know really exciting and it's harder for ocean people to show the evidence of what they've done because mm. the ocean is just so vast and so unknowable so you have to kind of marshal your evidence from lots of different lines of communication and you were just recently elected as a fellow for the royal society of canada what's that what's that mean yeah, it's interesting because the Indianapolis Prize was for the practical problem-solving work and the Royal Society is for academic knowledge, which may or may not be applied. And I must admit, I you know, I, I might have seen myself as a potential for uh, application of knowledge, but I hadn't considered myself as likely to be elected to the Royal Society because I've always been more interested in um, generating knowledge that makes a difference in a practical sense rather than theoretical knowledge. So it was, it was wonderfully exciting to get that as well. And, you know, within a few months of each other. So I feel as if the yin and the yang have been well appreciated, well rewarded with a mixture yes. of practical and academic conservation. So Absolutely. And very well deserved. Well, thank you. It's, it's great fun. It's a great voyage. I've got a remarkable team um, and hugely valuable collaborators. So, you know, it's a lot of fun at times when I don't feel too desk bound. Um, I definitely need to get underwater more, though. That's That's got to be on my wish list for 2021. <laughs> Hopefully we'll all be getting out from behind these computers and desks oh, in 2021. Goodness. Absolutely. So, yeah. Now, if people wanted to follow along with you and the Seahorse Project, where can they check you guys out and learn more about you? Is there any websites or social medias you guys have? Yeah, well, we have www.projectseahorse, two words jammed together. So Project Seahorse, all one word. Um, dot org and that's got a lot of stuff that we're up to and then we have various twitter feeds so i have amanda vincent one and there's project seahorse one and then we're working a bit on other forms of social media so you can look around and find us and follow and engage and yeah we'd love to hear about what you're thinking and 
Um, you know, really appreciate anybody who wants to provide any support, uh, particularly of the financial tar- sort. <laughs> tremendous amount on a, on a shoestring and really, really happy to chat to people about our work and how it makes a difference, not just for seahorses, but for ocean conservation in general. I mean, a large part of what we do is general protective measures. So setting up protected areas for all marine fishes in a particular region or changing policy that affects all marine fishes. Um, so we've got, you know, lots and lots of, of ambitions and many of them met, but lots more to do. So if you think you can help in any way, um, yeah, talk to us. And if you've got seahorses locally and want to start monitoring their populations, talk to us. If you're interested in contributing to policy change, well, talk to us because we're a tiny band of people and we punch way above our weight, but we sure can do with allies. I love that. Well, Amanda, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It was awesome to have you on the podcast. Lovely to talk to you. And it's really great that you're doing this. I mean, the more people who engage in passion for the ocean and and reach out to say as much, then the more likely we are to get it right for our wild species and spaces. Oh my goodness. Thank you. I appreciate that. That is kind of the, uh, the whole goal is to introduce people to uh, conservation issues that they may not have realized existed before or may not have realized the extent of before. Yeah. And it's been, it's been really great so far, which has been awesome. Well, follow us on, you know, follow me on Twitter and I can link you through to the others. So Amanda Vincent one, or go to our project seahorse website, projectseahorse.org. And if you get if something excites or interests you, or you can help in any way, absolutely love to hear from you and in the meantime um your listeners can help very simply by refusing to eat shrimp um the consumption of shrimp is the single biggest pressure on the seahorses bottom trawling for shrimp and destruction of coastal habitats for shrimp ponds so if you want to feel good about your contribution to the ocean just rein in your consumption of shrimp if you can't stop at least limit it and that would already make a, a really notable difference that we would value Well, there you go. That's a pretty easy difference to make. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe to it. You can also follow us on all of our social medias. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also find more behind the scenes info on our website, waterwomenpodcast.ca. I am so happy to keep sharing these stories of different water women each week with you. And until next week, stay salty.